Thank you for listening to the World Religions Podcast. This is recorded at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene in a classroom setting, so from time to time you will note that there are questions asked by the class that you may not be able to hear. Unfortunately, that is a restriction due to the nature of the podcast recording environment, and I will do my best to reproduce those questions for you so that you can hear them and engage in them, but again, from time to time, you may just not be able to hear the questions that are asked. If you would like to access the slides for this class, you may find them at slideshare.net slash jrforesteros. That's slideshare.net slash jrforesteros. All of the other episodes are also available at my blog, jrforesteros.com, and I would love to hear from you on Twitter or Facebook if you have any questions or engagement about any of these episodes. Thank you for listening, and without any further ado, here is the World Religions Podcast. I found that the closer you get to your own sets of beliefs, the more passion and the more uh, unease that people can start to feel. Uh, it's, it's really easy to talk to someone of a religion, and that's, that's kind of why we started with Buddhism and Hinduism, religions that are very unlike our own. Uh, because you can just look at those, and they're just so strange that it's, it's pretty easy to engage them dispassionately and academically. But the closer you get to something that's a lot like your own beliefs, the harder that becomes uh, because it, it starts to feel a lot more personal and it starts to feel a lot less safe for you to start to ask questions. And so uh, particularly in the last couple of sessions where we did Islam and now tonight with, with Mormonism, we're going to be talking about some, real, uh, some faiths that are very, very similar to what we believe about a lot of things. And it can get, uh, it can, if, if you're not careful, it can get, uh, it can get a little bit emotional. And so uh, that was why I asked you to begin by reflecting on some things in your own faith that you have found to be strange because uh, sometimes we, d we don't do that and we forget that something that we grew up with or that we believed for a long time probably actually is a little bit strange. We just don't think about it that way because we've always thought that or we've always been taught that. And so it can be, really, it can be a really helpful and healthy exercise to consider your own beliefs from an outsider's perspective. And, and see that that way when you approach people who believe something different from you, uh, you don't start with, well, that's weird or that's silly or that's dumb or that's crazy. You just go, okay, it's different. It's different from mine. And I need to try to understand it before I try to critique it. Uh, which is actually the methodology that we've been approaching in this class. Again, we are taking our approach to other faiths from Mars Hill, from what Paul did in Acts 17. And so if you remember clear back in week one, we talked about uh, what Paul did when he went to Athens. And the, uh, and the first thing he did was engage with their worldview. He understood and he researched and he, he got to where he understood basically what they believed and could dialogue with them about their own beliefs. Then he started with areas where they agreed. He didn't go right to the jugular for the things that set them apart. He, he started with truths that they both affirmed. Uh, things that they believed that were true things that God had revealed to, to them. Uh, obviously not through scripture, but through some other means, right? And so that's what we do in here. When we come to a, a worldview that's different from our own, we say, well, it's not completely wrong. There are truths in other religions and in other worldviews, and we need to find those things, and we need to claim them, and we need to say, look, those are things that we agree about. We agree with you that those things are true. And then after we've done all of that, uh, then we talk about the areas of disagreement, the areas where we say, well, you know what, okay, as much as, as much as we see eye to eye on some stuff, there are also things that we just don't agree about, and they're important things and they matter. Uh, and, and so there are things at the end of the day where we, we, we ha can't just say that we're different denominations of the same faith, where we have to say, no, at, at some point our, our paths part, and one of us is right and one of us is wrong. 
And so the goal of all of this is to equip you to build truth-seeking relationships with someone of another faith. I've said it before, and I'll keep saying it until we're done with this class, and you'll probably hear a lot after that, too. We believe Jesus is the truth. And so if Jesus is the truth, then we do not have to be afraid to lay down our beliefs and seek truth. And we don't, have to be, we don't have to be afraid of people who are different from us. We don't have to be afraid of ideas that seem maybe a little bit threatening or scary at first because if it is truth, then it is Jesus. And if it's not, then we don't have to worry about it. And so we can seek truth, and we are always seeking Christ. And, and we might find things that we thought that were wrong. Uh, we, uh, in a truth-seeking relationship with someone from another faith, we might uh, help them see some things that they had wrong. But if we are both seeking truth, then we're going to find Jesus. And that's, that's what we want. That's the goal in this class is to know Jesus better and to be able to share Jesus with other people better. So tonight, let's talk about Mormonism or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So first of all, we need to talk about this, this, this problem of, of a name. Because uh, I think of all of the religions that we're going to be studying in this class, uh, Mormonism is the most confusing initially because Mormons also claim to follow Jesus the same way we claim to follow Jesus okay and Mormons claim to be Christians the same way we claim to be Christians so the question that we have to ask at the very beginning is well what what makes a person a Christian and how do you decide if a particular group is Christian or not and so uh, you think about it you know we're Nazarenes here so we're you know we can pretty much be sure that other Nazarene churches think like we do, right? We're okay. And then, but then we know that outside of that, we don't think that Nazarenes are the only people who have the corner on truth, right? And we could go out from that and say, well, you know, we talk about the evangelical church as a whole. You know, we, we consider ourselves evangelicals, and so we like that whole branch of the family tree. We're, you know, probably if someone, if someone is an evangelical, we say they're, they're, they're all right. And then even out from that uh, is something called Nicene Christianity. This is something a lot of you may not have heard before, but I actually put it on the very back of your worksheet. Uh, there is a creed from the 4th century, uh, from the Council of Nicaea, and that creed since the 300s has been the sort of the cornerstone of Orthodox Christianity. And, and it's, it, it's gotten to the point today where, where anyone, anyone who can affirm the Nicene Creed, who's, who can affirm the things that the, the creed says are true, really falls inside of the circle of orthodoxy. And so that, that includes Protestants, that includes Catholics, it includes a Christian Orthodox Church. And for us, uh, as we'll see tonight, Mormonism is outside of Nicene Christianity. And a Mormon who knows their stuff will tell you, oh yeah, yeah, we're not Nicene Christians. Okay, that's not what we believe. We don't follow the Nicene Creed. <coughs> now, if you flip this around, uh, a Latter-day Saint would do the same kind of thing with us. They would say, okay, well, there's a circle of people that we believe we're going to talk about what their distinctive beliefs are, right? But they would put Nazarenes outside of their circle also. So when we would be in conversation with, with each other, we would say, okay, we both claim the name of Jesus. We both claim to be Christians, but our claims are not uh, compatible. They're mutually exclusive. They're different enough that one of us is going to be right and one of us is going to be wrong. And so that's the point at which uh, both of our groups would say, okay, well, we've got to figure this out. We've got to be able to have some conversation about this. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, now, uh, a word about nomenclature. I had to figure this out. Uh, Mike helped me out with this. Um, the official name of the church is the Church of the Mormon Church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And Mike told me they don't prefer the term Mormon because, as we'll learn, Mormon is one of their prophets. And they're not about following Mormon. They're about following Jesus. 
And so uh, he said they tolerate Mormonism as a nickname because they sort of have to because that's what is out there. But if you were to be talking to someone who practices Mormonism, they prefer the term Latter-day Saint. And you'll hear me, I, I will trip up a lot tonight, and I apologize for that in advance, but you'll hear me trying to correct myself and things like that. However, when we're talking about what Latter-day Saints believe in practice, it is appropriate to call it Mormonism as a way to distinct, uh, distinguish it from Nicene Christianity. Okay, so Latter-day Saints practice Mormonism, if you can think of it that way. Is that all right? Did I do that all right? Okay, good. Uh, so uh, we're going to now move into the section where we talk about history and worldview of uh, Mormonism. So Mormonism is a fairly distinctive American religion. A lot of the history and, and the theology really centers around America. Uh, it came out of the 19th century, and this was a time in America where we were in the throes of westward expansion. It was, was pre-Civil War, uh, and this is the rise of the Industrial Age. And so in our country as a whole, there was just a lot of anticipation of a new golden age of humanity that was coming. There, were all kinds of, uh, there was all kinds of religious experimentation. You see a lot of new Christian denominations breaking, breaking forth at this point. And... Uh, there, there are a lot of people because of that who just weren't really sure where they should go. There are so many different choices, so many different denominations, particularly in America, that it got confusing. You know, it wasn't like you just had Lutherans and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Methodists and Baptists, and I'm already getting tired of saying them, right? You had tons and tons and tons of them, and it seemed like there were new ones popping up in every little town. And so there was a, a young man, he was 14 years old, named Joseph Smith, Jr., and he, he prayed. His family was very religious. And he prayed and he wanted to know what is the true denomination? Which one of these is right? And at 14, he had a vision of God and Jesus, the Father and the Son, who came to him and told him that neither or not, none of the options that he had available to him were the true faith. And so not to join any of those denominations. Just to wait. So he did and he, he didn't. He did not join a denomination, and he just he continued to, uh, to pray and to be faithful. Now, this is one of the defining attributes of Mormonism that makes it different from Nicene Christianity. In Nicene Christianity, we consider the canon of God's revelation closed. Okay, canon refers to our scriptures, right? Uh, it doesn't matter how good the next Max Lucado book is. It doesn't get stapled in the back of your Bible, right? We consider that the canon was finished and closed, and God is not revealing any new scripture to the church, okay? Now, Joseph Smith was receiving new revelations from God, and specifically, he was receiving new, uh, new scriptures. And in fact, today, the, the, the Latter-day Saint canon is still open. Okay? It is still, they still receive revelations, and so, so they, they have what, what we call an open canon, whereas the Nicene Christians have a closed canon. And that we'll talk a lot more about that in a little bit. Now, in 1823, at the age uh, when Joseph Smith was 21, an angel named uh, Moroni visited Joseph Smith and led him to a collection of golden plates that were buried in the desert. Or uh, in, actually, they were in, sorry, in, uh, in New York. Yeah, in New York. And these golden plates preserve the story of a lost tribe of Israel that had settled in North America uh, back in before Jesus' death and resurrection, before his earthly life. 
And uh, then they had actually been visited by Jesus after his resurrection. So he appears to all of his disciples in Israel. Then he comes over and appears to this uh, group of people in North America. And these writings were compiled by a prophet named Mormon. Okay. Now, uh, over the next, I think, yeah, I think I had a nice little picture of that here, right? Okay. So over the next several years, God enabled Joseph Smith to translate the plates and he and some of his compatriots finished and published what is now called the Book of Mormon. It's called the Book of Mormon because of Mormon, the prophet who compiled the original plates. And then after Joseph Smith was finished, uh, the angel took the plates back. So in order, to verify, in order to verify their authenticity, Joseph Smith had 11 men sign testimony that they'd seen the plates, and some of them held the plates, and they all signed that. And then another thing that God, God did that we'll talk about later is that he ordained Joseph Smith to the priesthood, but we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, so uh, uh, Joseph Smith began in Pennsylvania, but some of his earliest followers converted to Disciples of Christ Church up in Kirtland, Ohio, which is up in Cleveland. Have any of you been there? Okay, a couple of you have. Uh, and so because uh, it, was, it was basically a big number of converts, and so uh, Smith and his compatriots moved out there, and they made Kirtland uh, an early base. He also sent one of his followers to find the New Zion, which they suspected to be located somewhere on the North American continent, and he reported that he had found it in Independence, Missouri, which is outside Kansas City, which is where I grew up. And, uh, and so then after a bank failure in Ohio and with tensions between the two, you know, it kind of created two centers. There's one in Jackson County, Missouri, and one in Kirtland, Ohio, and it was, you know, anytime you have two groups, someone's fussing that someone else is getting more attention and all of that. And so uh, because of some tensions and the, because of some problems they ran into in Kirtland, uh, the entire movement moved out to Missouri, to Jackson County. And in Jackson County, things got really ugly. Uh, you can actually still find people there today who are uh, nasty about uh, the Mormon church and about uh, people there because of, uh, and this, again, this was all almost 200 years ago at this point. So um, Smith was jailed and nearly lynched in Liberty, Missouri. And then in 1838, they had uh, something broke out, which is now called the 1838 Mormon War. And so in, in the climax of this, Mormons were actually expelled from Missouri by the state militia, and Smith was wanted for treason. But he escaped, and, and uh, most of the rest of the country was uh, down on Missouri for how they treated the Mormons. They thought it was a way overreaction. And so Illinois actually welcomed all of the Mormon refugees, and so they all went up into Illinois, and they found refuge there. Uh, by the time that they migrated to Illinois, the, the kind of who was the number two person in the organization had fluctuated, and there had been different guys who had been taking over at that point. By the time they went to Illinois, Brigham Young was stepping into position. You probably recognize his name if you're a basketball fan or something like that. Um, so, so the Illinois government allowed Smith to establish the city of Nauvoo, which is Hebrew for beautiful. So beautiful city, Nauvoo, Illinois. And Smith established a sort of a theocracy. And so in 1844, a newspaper in the town started printing some uh, salacious stuff about Smith and about some of his practices. And uh, Smith shut it down. Uh, he went in and ransacked it and shut it down. And so uh, some people in the town revolted and things got out of hand and the state militia ended up getting called in. And so uh, when they, they jailed Joseph Smith, in, 18, in 1844, and then they didn't, per, they didn't really offer him a whole lot of protection, and uh, they ended, he ended up being lynched by a group of people in Carthage. And so, yeah, they broke into jail and killed him while he was, while he was jailed. 
And so 1844 marks when Joseph Smith died. Now, immediately after his death, the movement fractured. And there were, there were several groups that broke off, but the two biggest groups, uh, the biggest group is the current-day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They followed Brigham Young out to Utah. Okay, another group followed Joseph Smith III, his son, and they ended up settling in Independence. And so there's a big, there's a big temple in Independence today that, that is a pretty famous landmark. So the, uh, the different branches of Mormonism today, again, the largest, the, the most famous one, the one if you see commercials, if you have missionaries come to your house and things like that, this is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They're by far the largest. They're the ones that followed Brigham Young. They're the ones based in Utah. Uh, another one is called the Community of Christ. They formerly were called the Reorganized Latter-day Saints, and they're the ones that settled in Independence. Uh, they're, I cannot pin down the Community of Christ. They seem real slippery to me. Um, I, sometimes they endorse the Book of Mormon, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're Trinitarian, sometimes they're not. I can never tell who they're trying to cozy up to, and that's very disingenuous of me to say that. But it, again, it just they, they seem kind of slippery. So, uh, but they're, again, they're a much smaller denomination than the Latter-day Saints. And then there, finally, there are fundamentalist groups, and these are probably the ones you've heard of because they make the news all the time. These, are, these tend to be polygamist groups. They're scattered all over the United States. There's about 20,000 of them practicing today. Um, and again, they're just they're very small, very small organizations. That tends to be probably a family or two. So, good. Okay, I want to pause there for a moment. That was a lot of information. Do you have any clarifying questions? All right, let's keep going then. So let's talk about the Mormon scriptures, okay? These are, the, these are referred to sometimes as the standard works, and I've actually seen, uh, you can actually get them all bound in one uh, even thicker Bible than what we use. So uh, if, if you want, if you want, Amazon has those. Uh, first of all, they do use the Bible, and they use the King James Version. That is considered the, the, the authorized, inspired version. Uh, and... and Latter-day Saints say that the, the King James Bible is accurate as far as it has been translated well. Okay, but it, it does have translation errors, and it does have some inaccuracies and things that have been crept in, uh, errors that have crept in over time, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The next one is the Book of Mormon. Again, this is the translation of the gold plates that Joseph Smith found, a collection of writings that were made by pre, uh, pre-European uh, Israelites in America. And then there are two other books called The Doctrine and Covenants and The Pearl of Great Price. And these are more writings from Joseph Smith and from some of the other uh, Latter-day Saint leaders. Okay? Uh, the Doctrine and Covenants are the, is the one that is, that is open, that can be amended as uh, new revelations are uh, Doctrine and Covenants. Okay. So all four of these books comprise the, the Mormon scriptures. Okay. All right. Now, a, a, a really important aspect of uh, Latter-day Saint theology is the question of church authority. And this is, again, an area where we part ways. We will not talk about that for a little while. So, the, again, this is just the story of, uh, this is the, story of the church from the, from the perspective of Latter-day Saint theology. Okay. So the first thing, we start with Jesus founding the church. This would have been in, uh, you know, in the Bible when Jesus gave, told Peter, you're the, you're the rock and on this rock I established my church. So as you know, Jesus had 12 apostles. 
right? Twelve disciples. Uh, now, and there were three particularly, Peter, James, and John, who were his core group of guys. And then there's also a story uh, after Judas betrays Jesus and he kills himself. There's a story at the beginning of Acts where the other 11 apostles come together. And they go through a process by which they have to choose a new 12th person. And they end up choosing a guy named Matthias. And then they have a, a ceremony where they lay hands on him and anoint him and authorize him as an apostle. Okay, uh, the, the Church of Latter-day Saints looks at this as the paradigm for how God's authority is transmitted through the church and through the world. Okay, that there, are, there is to be a council of 12 apostles who have God's authority on the earth. And that any time an apostle is lost, uh, that this process has to go on where they restore this apostle and they, and they maintain that circle of 12. Now, what happened was... Obviously, all of these apostles got martyred, right? They, different things were happening. And, and basically, over a very short amount of time, probably the first hundred years or so of the church, uh, this authority that God had given to, uh, given to his people was lost on the earth. And it was taken over by you know, bishops and, and people like that. We're just trying to do authority. And, and uh, this is something that's referred to as the keys having been lost, the keys of authority. Okay, that's, that's a term that you will hear if you talk to a Latter-day Saint. They'll talk about how um, God has keys. Uh, it, it, again, the key, the key is a symbol of God's authority on the earth. So the different kinds of uh, keys of authority. And, and these, were, these are what were lost. Okay. Now, this is why there are so many divisions and denominations in the church. is because very, very early in the life of the early church, uh, those, those keys of authority were lost. And so the church shattered and fragmented. Okay, and so if that had not happened, then there would still be one true church today. So that was the case up until the early 1800s when God ordains Joseph Smith. And God ordains Joseph Smith to restore the one true church. And Joseph Smith receives authority. He receives the keys of God's authority on the earth, and then he receives um, the anointing that God's people need to be priests on this earth. Okay. Any questions about that? Do you understand? Again, that's, that's the, that's the Latter-day Saint perspective on uh, basically church history in five minutes. So wildly oversimplified, but that's the basic. Are the keys physical or are they spiritualized? I, I, they're metaphors, I assume, correct? The keys. Yeah, very good question. The keys are uh, the ability to uh, preside. Right. The keys of presidency to administer. Uh, uh, the priesthood authority is maintained by all right. uh, worthy participants of that authority, but the keys to administer uh, are, are in selected individuals, right. the apostles and the prophets. But that's more of a metaphor. They're not like literal keys, oh, right? Not literal yeah. Keys. yeah. Okay, good. So, good. Any other questions? Quick one, just yeah, real quick. No what, problem. What do you mean by great apostasy? Apostasy means falling away. And so again, that was just when when God's authority on the earth was lost. Those those keys, those metaphorical keys of God's uh, God's rule and the orderliness of the church were, were lost. Because that council of twelve was martyred, killed, you know, sacrificed. Died what, yeah. Age. Yeah. Well mo most of them did not have the luxury of living till old age. They were okay. for the most part they were killed because of their testimony of Jesus. Okay. So Thank you. yeah, no problem. Great question. Anyone else? Want to keep going? All right. 
So, uh, all now, now this this idea of authority and of priesthood is then what shapes uh, the Latter Day Saint Church today. And so there are two kinds of priesthood in the, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints. First of all is the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. This is the one that you find in the Old Testament, Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was of the tribe of Levi. Okay, and this is all men who are 12 through 18. Okay, and this is, this, uh, in, in a lot of ways, they feel, feel very similar roles to what Aaron and his sons did. They, they take care of the church. They take care of the church people. They, do, they have duties during the times that are, they're gathered for worship. Okay, and there, there are a few different levels of that, but it's, it's, all, it's all centered around these are, these are they're learning, uh, they're, they're learning uh, the, the faith and they're learning how to uh, serve. Once you are 18, you can enter the Melchizedek priesthood. This is from Hebrews chapter 7. It talks about Jesus being a priest of the order of Melchizedek, who is higher than the Levitical priesthood. And uh, the first one is elder. If you have ever had a Mormon missionary come to your door, this is, they are elders. They are elders. They have been ordained as priests in the order of Melchizedek, and they are, they are elders. Okay. Next up from that is a high priest. And both of these are based on desire. If you, if you are a Mormon male and you want to pursue this priesthood, and you have proven to your church that you are worthy of that, then you will be ordained as these. Uh, the, the levels then after this are based on calling. Okay, which means that uh, there is a, a need for that in the church, and then people in authority over you uh, have a revelation that you, are, that you are the person that God wants to fill this position. So those are bishop, and then what is called the 70s, and that will make more sense in, in a moment. Okay, but those are the four, those are the four uh, orders of uh, levels of priesthood in the priesthood of Melchizedek. And again, uh, Mormon men can have both of these priesthoods. Okay, good. All right. Now here's a picture that I found uh, of, I, I believe that this is Peter, James, and John. Uh, and they are bestowing both priesthoods, or the priesthood of Melchizedek, on uh, Joseph Smith. John the Baptist appeared to him and bestowed the, Levit the Levitical, the Aaronic priesthood on him. So he received both of the priesthood from guys that had it bestowed on them in biblical times. And so again, that, that was how, that's how that he was able to maintain the unbroken chain of authority, right? Between, uh, even though it was lost in the apostasy. Okay. So how is the church organized today? Uh, at the, at the, the highest level or the highest office is the office of the prophet. This is what Joseph Smith was and what Brigham Young was. And so there's been, there's been a prophet at the head of the church since Joseph Smith. And then with him are two counselors, and so they sort of form that triumvirate like Peter, James, and John did, like Jesus' sort of inner circle, right? And, uh, and then, then there are also a council of 12 apostles, okay? And this forms what they call the first presidency, and this, and this, is, this is the ruling body of the Church of Latter-day Saints, Okay? They're the ones that have the keys of administration of the church. They're the ones that are responsible for, the, for, for running the church the way God wanted it to be run. Next level of administration under them. Now, there, again, the, the, last, the last order of Melchizedek was the 70. Well, this is where, this is where that is. The, under, under the Council of Twelve Apostles are seven quorums of 70s. 
So it's seven groups of 70s who are the, just sort of the next layer of administration in the church, right? And then below them are the stakes. This refers to the stakes that held the tabernacle in place, and so it's like a spiritual stake of the tabernacle of the new Zion, the new home of God. And then stakes are over bishops who are the ones that preside over the local congregations. So you can see it goes all the way from the, yeah. The stake of person? Or yeah. Or is it a person? Yeah. yeah, all of these are persons. Yeah. So again, you can see it's, 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 it's a hierarchy. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an administered sort of layering of authority. And uh, the keys of authority, the keys of the authority of God's church are, are administered throughout that. And then it, it, it sort of the authority is passed down uh, all the way down to the local congregational level. Are bishops like uh, paid ministers? Uh, is everybody in that chain like part of the paid organization? Yeah, I, I, um, uh, all of these individuals from 70s uh, down are lay ministers. Uh, and the general authorities receive some compensation. They have been professional individuals themselves. Yeah, it's good. Doug? Where does the local congregation fit under a bishop? The bishop is considered a pastor of a congregation. Ah, so if you, a local congregation, a local LDS congregation has a bishop. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. One. Yes. And um, I'm, I'm a, a responsible as a state president, so I oversee about nine to ten congregations or nine to ten bishops, and I help administer you know, those congregations. All right, good. Any other questions about how the church is set up? Okay. Good. Now, uh, now we're going to move into talking more about uh, theology and and sort of the the uh, under the the Mormon understanding of the universe, life, the universe, and everything. Okay. Uh, figured I'd put up the most well-known Mormon I know. Uh, really, as as in all of my research, what the the one core value that kept coming up over and over and over again and everything was family. And again, if you know anything about the Church of Latter-day Saints, that's probably what you know about is that, that they really, really value family. Uh, the, the nuclear family is really the lens through which Mormon theology makes the most sense, at least to me. Uh, and, and it's really one of the key hallmarks of Mormonism in America. So, uh, so just keep in mind as we go through all of this that if you try to imagine all of this within the context of the nuclear family, it really starts, at least for me, it made a lot of sense. Uh, I felt like I was really able to understand uh, this belief system. So let's talk about God and Mormonism. Start at the, start at the top. Uh, God is God the Heavenly Father. This God created our universe. God has a physical body. God is male. God, and God has a divine spouse. And they together as heavenly parents birthed spiritual children, which we'll get to in a minute. Okay. Now, there's, uh, there's some... I don't want to say squishy parts of Mormon theology, but parts that are just not part of the daily practice. They're, they're more of what, you know, the theologians and the ivory towers tend to kick around about, you know, 
was God once a human like us? And are there other realms of existence and things like uh, all things that I've heard people say before uh, in my in my conversations with some of our my Latter Day Saint friends? They said, you know, that's not that maybe like we just don't know, and that's a lot. Of, there's been a lot of speculation about that, but again. For sure, when it gets down to like day to day, what we think about, what we pray about, that kind of stuff, it doesn't. That's that doesn't enter into it. So uh, it's it's maybe like a, a maybe with a big question mark. But but again, what's important to know about God is God cre- God is a creator. God has a physical body and a divine spouse and births spiritual children. Moving forward, then okay. So what about humans? Okay, well, uh, we were pre-existent as intelligences and again this gets in that place where we just don't know really what that was we don't know what that looked like we don't know uh, the characteristics or the nature of that but there was some sort of pre-existence and and again they call it intelligences okay but then through whatever process uh, the heavenly parents decided to birth us we were birthed as spiritual children okay and as children we were lesser than god but we desired the ability to be like God. And so God gave us the opportunity to come to earth. So we were given souls, or we became souls that were encased in bodies, right? The spiritual children became, we got bodies, and we have the chance to grow and to learn good and evil. Okay, but we needed a way to get back to God. And so that's where Jesus comes in. I'm gonna pause there, some of you are still writing. Oh, sorry. We'll go back. Don't worry. We'll go back. There we go. Souls given the chance to grow. So is that is that two separate steps? Birth to spiritual children and then? Yes. So that's a separate. Yeah, we were preexistent as spiritual children okay. before we were incarnated into bodies. Without bodies. Correct. Okay. A spiritual yes. Yes, and there are spiritual children that do not become in, in embodied. Gotcha. Okay. Good so far. Yeah. Okay. So where does Adam and Eve fit into that? First, first, first bodies. And okay, but the world wasn't perfect then. They actually sinned. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah, there's still. I mean. Uh, sin is very much still a part of Mormon theology, right? And, and again, that's why I said, like, because, because the souls are learning good and evil and they're sinning and stuff, they need, they need a way to be able to go back to God. So that, that's, again, where Jesus comes in. Now, Jesus in Mormonism is the son, the spiritual first, the first spiritual son of the, the Heavenly Father. Okay? And he is the firstborn of all of God's spiritual children. So that includes... Lucifer, but it also includes you and me and even the Holy Ghost. Okay? All things that are beings that are created are, are spiritual siblings. Okay, so angels, demons, us, Holy Ghost, Jesus. And then again, Jesus is the one who God sent down to atone for our sin so that we could be reunited with God. Good? All right, here we go. 
Now, so what happens after we die? Well, after death, after our time here, our souls and our bodies are separated again. So the soul goes to the spirit world, which is sort of, uh, it, you can probably think of it like purgatory, okay? And they await the last day. And then on the last day, our bodies are resurrected and to glorified bodies, sort of like what Jesus had after the resurrection, right? It's obviously physical, but it's not the same kind of physical. And then our bodies are reunited with our spirits, and then we enter into a level of glory that's based on how we lived our earthly lives. Okay, hell, there is a hell in Mormonism, but it is reserved for a very, 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 very few who are just basically pure evil. And those very, very, very few will be cast out with Satan. Okay, nearly everyone who's ever lived will be in one of these three levels of glory. Is there a final judgment? Yeah, that's, that would be what determines who goes where. Yeah. What are the three levels? Oh, Hang on to your seat. Here we go. <laughs> okay. The first is the telestial level of heaven. Okay. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a verse in the New Testament where Paul talks about some having the glory of like stars, some like the moon, and some like the sun. And these are what, uh, these are what get ascribed to these three levels of heaven. So the telestial is like the glory of the stars. Okay. Now these are the people who are pagans who did not accept the gospel of Jesus while they were alive. Okay? And so they did not accept the gospel. Pagans, people who did not accept the gospel of Jesus while they were alive. They go to the Telesi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay? And, yeah, sorry, in the very back. Would that include atheists then, the pagans? Yes. Yep. Yeah, anyone, anyone who did not respond to the gospel of Jesus. So... The next level is the terrestrial, and that's the one like the moon. Okay. And this is for, this would basically be where the, uh, us, where we, where we as Nazarenes would fall. These are people who responded to the gospel of Jesus, but not the full gospel of Jesus as revealed uh, in, in the one true church of the Latter-day Saints. Okay. We were deceived by teachings of men, I think is how it's been said. So... This would be where most Christians who are not a part of the, the Latter-day Saints would, would be. And then the... What do you mean? Uh, just from that verse where Paul talked about, Paul said some, some will have glory like stars, some like the moon, and some like the sun. Is it? Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Yeah. So... And then the last level is the celestial level. And this is the one that's like the sun. I'll take the sun away so you can spell it. There we go. Um, this is the highest. This is the one where uh, humans actually become like God. And they get to live with their spiritual families forever. Uh, so the, those who have been sealed, uh, a Mormon marriage that's done in a Latter-day Saint temple is considered a sealed marriage and you're sealed for eternity your family is sealed for eternity and so if you've done that uh, then you get to this celestial level where you and your family will be together for eternity okay uh, now uh, what what is actually said in the Mormon scriptures is that they will live the kind of life that God lives and so 
there's been a lot of debate about what exactly that means. And there are many who speculate that this will mean that humans can become sort of like God. And, and it's, and everything I saw was made very clear. No one, no one ever gets to be as at the same level as God or have different authority. Everyone's still under God, but uh, somehow will be this at this highest level will be the kind of life that God lives. So. So only the um, only the Latter Day Saints get to go to celestial. Yeah, and I think it's not even all Latter Day Saints. It's only those who have been full participants in the church. Again, like sealed. In is is that correct? Well, it, it would be all those that follow this. Okay, yeah, all the, okay, so. Follow the way, so it could be someone that was a Buddhist, and then, uh, as they understood during this time of the spirit prison, uh, there is an opportunity for someone who didn't uh, hear of Christ to receive that information and accept uh, a vicarious baptism, that's the baptism that we do in our temples, and so this Buddhist that was a Buddhist on, on earth could, by following the way, would be able to yeah. be in the celestial kingdom, so people of other faiths, Clearly, do still have the opportunity. Have that yeah. opportunity uh, as a fair uh, representation. But that's Good. after death, after uh, physical death. After physical death. Yeah. Good. So yeah, if you, if you didn't hear that, uh, it's uh, e- even those who did not hear the gospel of Jesus during earthly life uh, in the spirit world after their physical death will have the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus, and then if they respond positively to that and participate in the way then they, too, can live in the celestial kingdom. So. Uh, and it's in, found in Peter, where during the three days that Christ's body was in the tomb, he actually opened up the ministry right. in the spirit world. Right, where he speaks to the, goes and speaks to the spirits in prison. Yes. Yeah, so. Good. Okay. I want to run through a few other uh, practices, uh, Latter-day Saint practices that you may have heard about before, uh, and just sort of give you a picture of where those fit into um, where those fit. So first of all, uh, Latter-day Saints do do practice a, a set of dietary restrictions. They eat meat sparingly, and then they abstain from alcohol, tobacco, uh, coffee, and tea. Okay, so if you are having uh, a Mormon friend over your house, don't offer them coffee. Uh, offer them a nice lemonade or a soda or something like that. But Okay. Uh, uh, mission. Mission is something that uh, both men and women can go on, uh, but it, tend, it has at least traditionally tended to be mostly men because the age limit for women, uh, they had to be at least 21, and a lot of times by then, uh, women are on their way to being married or, or something like that, and so a lot of women did not go on mission. Uh, that age has recently been lowered to 19, and so you're seeing a lot more female Mormon uh, missionaries going out. Uh, they, they are still not considered priests or elders. They're, they're uh, sisters, okay? But, and then the men who go out are considered elders in the Melchizedek priesthood. And so they do both evangelism and they also do humanitarian work. So in the wake of natural disasters and things like that, the, the Church of Latter-day Saints will send out... Uh, their missionaries to do relief work and things like that. So uh, it's not it's not required, but it's encouraged. And Mike, did you tell me about fifty percent of the of the men go choose to go? So okay, again, we've already sort of mentioned baptism for the dead, but this is uh, this is why again something a, a lot of people know about Mormonism, even if they don't know much, is that they have a strong emphasis on genealogy, and a lot of their genealogical records are some of the most far-reaching and accurate that we know of. And that is because of this emphasis on baptism for the dead. Um, <clears throat> uh, 
To be baptized for someone who is dead in your family is a way for you to make an offer of Christ's gospel to them for the people who died before they had a chance to hear about the, the true gospel of, of the Mormon church. Okay, and so you can do that. Uh, is that only done in temples? Okay, that is only done in temples, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but uh, again, that's another, that's another practice. Yeah. You use the word offer. Yeah. So that, that, that's not a guarantee. No. That's an offer. They have to accept it okay. and choose for themselves. Yeah. On the other side. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, in the spirit world where they're awaiting, where they're waiting. Good. Okay, another uh, very, very important uh, Latter-day Saint practice is marriage. Okay, and, and again, if, if, you want, if you want the highest level of exaltation, then it, you have to have a marriage that's sealed in a temple. Okay, and so and it's something that's very, very valuable, uh, valued to uh, Latter-day Saints. It is the practice of marriage, the institution of marriage. And then the other... What constitutes a temple? Uh, there are, how many are there in the United States? 140 worldwide. 140 worldwide. Uh, so a temple is different from like what you would see and be if you wanted to go worship at a you know Sunday if you wanted to go to Latter Day Saint Church here in Beaver Creek. That's that is a church, uh, and and you you and I can go in there as as non Latter Day Saints, non Mormons. We can go in there. Temples are reserved specifically for uh, Mormon peoples, and there's the, and they're more they're considered houses of God. Where, uh, where spe special rituals take place, like the baptism for the dead, like the sealing marriages, things like that. And so they're, they're not considered houses of worship for, for us. They're, they're houses of, is that fair, fair enough? Yeah, oh. the, the activity in the temple takes place from Tuesday through Saturday, okay. and Sunday then we all go back to our regular worship services. Good, okay. So... And there are, there are quite a few of them, even in the United States, I know. Um, so, okay, the la and the last one, uh, I just had to talk about it because, it, again, it's one that I hear a lot of jokes about and stuff, and that we're trying to get past that. So, uh, and that is the temple garments. Uh, you have probably uncharitably heard them referred to as holy underwear, okay? Uh, these are simple, they're just, they're modest white undergarments, and they're really not that much different from wearing a piece of cross jewelry, okay? The point of them is to remind a Latter-day Saint of the commitments that they've made to God. So just like you might wear a you know a cross necklace or something like that, it just reminds you of your faith and of your commitment to God. It's the same serves the same kind of a function. Okay, so it's yeah, it's it's a uh, it's close. It's like that's that goes like this and this. That's like kind of like a t-shirt and shorts. Is that what women wear as well? <clears throat> Sim similar. Well, no, these are these are worn all the time. Whenever. Okay. Well, I assume whenever you want. Yeah. Okay. All right, we're going we're going to move through this stuff pretty quickly so that we can give Mike a chance to answer some of your questions. Uh, I want to talk about building bridges to Mormonism. These are the things that we both value, the things that if we're going to uh, start a conversation, a uh, truth-seeking conversation with uh, with Latter-day Saints, these are places where we can uh, connect. First of all, we both value a relationship with God. That's something that's very important to to both of our faiths. And so, uh, you can ask a Latter-day Saint about their relationship with God, and they would love to tell you about it, okay? Uh, we both love Jesus. Jesus is very, very, very important to both of our faiths, and so again, you can talk about Jesus. You can talk about uh, forgiveness that you found in him. You can talk about your favorite teachings of his. Uh, you can talk about Jesus. Okay. Uh, we do have a, a very 
uh, a lot of our sacred history in common. There are important divergences, but there's a lot of overlap too. And so we, you can talk about, uh, you, again, you can talk about your favorite Bible stories and different teachings and verses and things like that. And that will not be strange or foreign or unwelcome to a Latter-day Saint. And then finally, uh, we both really value family and tradition. Uh, you could do a lot worse than to ask a Latter-day Saint about their family, right? Uh, they love to talk about that and love to share that with you. And I assume that most of you probably enjoy talking about your families too. And so, uh, and you know, talk, talk about your faith. Talk about what you love about your church, what you love about your church family. Um, I, I, I assume most of you already know this, but the Feed the Creek ministry that we have here at the church, are, one of our biggest partners is the, the Mormon Church in Beaver Creek. And so, again, we both really care about making the world a better place. And, and we, can, we can get together on some, some activities like this, even though we don't see eye to eye on some important things. So, uh, again, there's, th those are all some great places to start building bridges. Okay? Now, let's talk about some of the important disagreements. First of all, is God Trinity? Okay? Now, if you, were, uh, if you were here for the last time when we talked about Islam, uh, a lot of the things that Islam accuses us of are things that, that, uh, that our Latter-day Saint friends actually do believe. And so that, that gets a little, we kind of are in the middle of those two faiths, and it gets a little bit strange sometimes. But again, that's why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. Um, so again, last time we talked about the, the picture of the trinity that Islam has of us is that it's polytheism, that they're three separate gods who are all equal. And we said, no, that's not what we believe. That, that is how the Mormon faith talks about the Godhead, okay? That God and Jesus and the Holy Ghost, they use Holy Ghost because of King James, right? God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost are three separate persons. They're equal, they're united, but they're three separate persons. Okay, and so when I say polytheism, that is, that is purely an academic term. That's not, I'm not talking about like Zeus and Ares and like they're all fighting with each other and turning into animals and stuff. Like not, none of that, okay? It's just, it's, it's that they are three separate beings, okay? So what, again, there's, there's a big difference and this is, this, is a, this is why we are a Nicene Christianity and Mormonism is not is because uh, we, and in, in the creed it says, Jesus is begotten, not made, okay? But in, in Mormonism, God the Father made, created the Son and the Holy Ghost, right? They, they came after him. God the Father was there first, and then he made them, he created them, he, he birthed them, okay? In Christianity, we believe that, that all three of them are co-eternal, Right? Coexistent. That, that, that all three of them have always been and always will be. And that none of them were created. They're equally... And last week, last time in Islam, I gave you the Athanasian Creed. That's the one that says that they're, they're equally co-uncreated. Okay? And all three of them together are one God. Three persons, but one God. The, uh, the, the phrase that you'll hear uh, from a, from a Latter-day Saint theologian is personages. They are three separate personages. And that's, that's a way of distinguishing it from what we say is three persons. Okay, when, what, what a, what a Latter-day Saint theologian will say is that they are three separate individuals. Okay? And, and we, we say that, no, they are one God. Okay? Uh, the, the, 
For me, the most important thing about this distinction is that whatever one of these persons does in, in Christianity and in, in the Trinity, all of them do. Okay, We believe that all three persons do, do everything that any of the one of them does. What's always true about one of them is always true about the other ones and vice versa. Uh, and that's, that's distinct from uh, Mormonism where you see them playing different roles and doing different things. Okay. Uh, and this one, and I'm happy. I'm happy to be uh, to, to debate about this one because this is one I was really a little bit iffy on. Um, so if I'm wrong about this, come up and tell me after when when I bring you guys up here. Um, in Christianity, God became human. Okay, Christians believe that God is separate from creation and that God is independent of creation. This is why the Trinity is so important. We believe that because God is a Trinity, God did not need to create. Um, God created out of the overflow, out of his abundance. Uh, and so all of our words about God are inherently limited. God is always completely above us and transcendent of us. So even, even when we say that God is our Father or God is Trinity, uh, these, these words are limited. And we understand that they don't actually fully encompass and name who God is. Um, in, in Mormon theology, humans become like God. Uh, when we talk about when when we talk about in Mormon theology God as Father, uh, we mean that in a literal sense. Uh, that is a, that is an accurate naming of God. That God is God is a Father that has children. These are not just these are not just metaphors to help us understand God's relationship. Okay. Here we go. Second, we need to talk about Jesus. And again, this, this dovetails very closely into our discussion of the Trinity. Um, when, when we talk about the Trinity, we say that Jesus is not just a relative of the Father. He's not just, he's not, he's not just uh, God's child. That the, These are metaphors because Jesus is the Father wholly and fully. They are completely united. They are completely one being. And so we, what we see in the incarnation is not just God's son, but we actually see God in the flesh. And what we have in the revelation of Jesus is the fullest revelation of God's character, not just God's son. Then we need to talk about the gender of God. Uh, this one might ruffle a few of your feathers. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, in Nicene Christianity, we hold that God is neither male nor female. In fact, that both male and female are necessary to fully create an accurate image of God. Okay, that's what Genesis 1 says, right? Uh, but in uh, Latter-day Saint theology, God, God is male. God is biologically male and has a spouse. Okay? And this impacts how we talk about genders. This is why in the Church of the Nazarene we ordain both men and women. Why we are egalitarian when it comes to gender roles. Why we say that, that all people are priests, but uh, in the Latter-day Saint Church, priesthood is specifically restricted to men. And that's, that's a difference. And it, it goes back to how we look at God and how we understand God's nature. Okay, let's talk about the New Testament. Uh, 
Uh, first of all, we need to talk about the reliability of the New Testament because, again, this is, this is a place where uh, the Latter-day Saints would say that the, the New Testament is good as far as it goes, but it's, it's lacking. It has errors. And uh, the, other, the other scriptures that we have correct or fill out uh, where it is lacking. Okay? So, uh, again, sorry to any of you who are fans of the King James in here. I, I like it. But uh, the King James is actually translated from pretty recent manuscripts. And there are a lot of translation errors in the, in the King James. Okay, so we would actually agree with, with, the, with the Latter-day Saints about that. We would say, you know what, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff in there that is not actually what the original authors intended in, in the King James Version. Now, what you're looking at is a picture of, of a copy of the Gospel of John. In the last hundred years, we have found tons and tons and tons. I mean, like over 5,000 manuscripts and manuscript fragments from uh, the New Testament. And so today, we are more confident of the wording of the New Testament than we are even of the works of Shakespeare, who wrote 1,500 years after the New Testament authors. Okay? And so while the King James is actually, yes, not a very accurate translation, uh, our modern translations are very reliable. And we are, uh, we are as confident as we can be that we do have the original, uh, the original wording that the New Testament authors uh, penned. And so we, we uh, as Nazarenes, we're very confident of our New Testament. Uh, the New Testament was closed in the 400s by consensus of the churches. And, and again, we believe that that was under the guide of the Holy Spirit. And when the whole, that, that, and it's, it's fascinating to me because there is not a, you cannot find a church council that sat down and argued about which books got in. Uh, the, the process by which we got the New Testament that we have was a lot more grassroots and organic than that. And what you found was the Holy Spirit was working in churches all over the known world. And, it was, and, and the, the texts that made it in were the texts that churches all over the world were finding to be useful, were finding to be inspired. They, they were reading and sharing these in worship and saying, you know, when we read from James, the Spirit is speaking to us. And someone else in another part of the world was like, you know, us too. And, and, so, and so through it, through a process that we believe was divinely ordered by the Holy Spirit, uh, the New Testament canon was closed. And so that doesn't mean that we think that revelation has stopped because, again, we, we hear from God. We expect people to hear from God. We expect people to, when they worship and pray and things, to hear from God. But the canon is closed. And we believe that there will be no new scripture added. And... Uh, oh, yeah, so I guess I should say that. We have, we have full confidence in the Church of the Nazarene that the Holy Spirit has preserved the true church. And that's a, that's a difference from Latter-day Saints, right? Latter-day Saints say, no, that the, that the authority of God's church on the earth was lost very early. And, and we say, well, you know what? We know that the church has had its highs and certainly had a lot of lows. But we believe that, we believe that the authority that God gave the church was never lost. And, in fact, is preserved today, again, inside of the circle of Nicene Christianity. So that's a, as you can tell, that's a big difference. Now, for Nazarenes, we have a particular thing that I don't think we've talked about in here before called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And that is how we, that's how we approach interpreting scripture. That's how we approach theology. That's how we approach everything. It's sort of like, you can imagine it like that circle or like that sandbox for how we know when we're in bounds and how we know when we're out of bounds. Okay, the, the, we, give the, we give the most priority and the most weight to scripture and to what scripture says. But then that is also informed by three other things, reason or our intellect. You know, things, we expect things to make sense. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And so we expect God to make sense to us. We expect God to be intelligible. 
And so we can use our reason. If we read two verses and they don't seem to fit together, we don't just say, well, I guess we just believe things that are contradictory. We, we try to figure it out. We try to figure out what the problem, maybe we mistranslated it. Maybe I'm misunderstanding it, right? Maybe there the, but we can use our brains. We can use our brains to figure that out. We also use tr tradition, and that's not just the tradition of the Nazarene church, which is only about 100 years. It's the tradition of, of Nicene Christianity, which goes back a uh, very, very, lo uh, very long time. And so again, we use, how have other Christians interpreted this? How have other Christians understood this? What, what problems are, did they have with that? Or how, what takes did they have on this text? And then we also use our own experience. Right? That, that's also a factor. Our experience, not only of God, but of um, but, uh, other people's experience and things like that. Experience in the world. Okay. And then last, uh, we're getting through this good. Okay. The last one is how we approach church authority. Okay. Now, um, the Nazarene church believes that our authority as priests comes directly from God and that we were called together as a church by the Holy Spirit. So we, we choose denominational organization because we find it useful. Um, but we, we do not think that there's anything uh, particularly sacred about, uh, no offense to our DS, who's a nice guy, our district superintendent, but uh, we, don't, you know, we, don't, we don't find that the, the structures of our church are particularly inspired or divine or sacred. They're, they're just useful. They, they're helpful to organize and to move resources and train people and things like that. And so we use them. Uh, and that, that, is, that is different from the Latter-day Saints. Uh, for the Latter-day Saints, authority is mediated by those keys, those metaphorical keys that were given to humanity by God. And so for the Latter-day Saints, the very structures and the organization of the church itself is sacred. And that's why, it's, that's why again, for, for a Nazarene, if, if I, I was, I was uh, if I, have a Baptist friend, well, we can debate theology and things like that, but at the end of the day, the fact that they don't believe in district superintendents, and I do, not, not really such a big deal, probably for either one of us. Um, but you, uh, a Latter-day Saint will not be willing to set aside the structure of their church like that, because for them, those are divinely given by God. And so the reason that their church is the one true church is because that's the way God set it up. And, and that's, that's where God drew the boundary lines for them. And, and for Nazarenes, again, what it is for us is that Nicene, that, that Nicene Creed. Okay, so to review some of the big differences, nature of the Trinity, or uh, nature of God, rather, as Trinity or not, nature of Jesus, uh, gender of God, and gender issues then in the church, the reliability of the New Testament and all of the issues that are wrapped up in that, our sacred histories and things like that. And then how we understand authority and where authority comes from and, and, and who gets to make those calls. Th those, are the, those are the big things uh, that, that really uh, separate Nazarenes and Mormons. Now let's talk about very, very briefly how not to build a friendship. And then I want to bring Mike up here so you guys can ask some questions. Uh, first of all, don't argue over who's really Christian. Okay. Again, I am going to bet that if you consider yourself Christian and someone came up and said, hey, what are you? Oh, Nazarene? What are you guys, some kind of cult? You'd probably be offended. So based on the golden rule, if you don't like it when people do that to you, don't do that to someone else. You may not agree with Mormons. You may not agree with their theology. You may not think that they're Christian. But that is no way to start a relationship with someone. That is no way to, that is no way to uh, build any kind of mutual respect or anything like that. And, so, and I would, again, I would, I'm willing to bet from the Mormons that I've met, you will not find, you will, they will be very courteous to you in kind. So 
don't, again, just don't start there, okay? <laughs> again, leave, just leave the word cult out of your vocabulary, okay? We're not, this is not Branch Davidianism, it's not Waco, it's not, you know, Heaven's Gate or something like that. Cult, uh, cult has a very negative connotation, and again, if you're, I guess if all you're trying to do is start a fight, use it all you want, you'll probably get a fight real fast, but if you're actually trying to build a truth-seeking relationship that's founded on mutual respect, uh, don't don't use those kinds of words. Don't use those. In, and again, the best rule for this is the golden rule. If you would not like someone saying that you were a member of a cult, maybe don't say that to someone else. Okay. Uh, three, avoid the stereotypes. Um, and, and again, as someone who grew up in Kansas City, where there was it was a hotbed of anti-Mormonism, uh, I heard all kinds of nasty stuff, and I didn't even know. It. Like I didn't. I mean, it wasn't. I just didn't even. That was just. I grew up hearing things, uh, and I didn't know that it was a deal. I didn't know until I moved other places in the country that people just weren't so like angry all the time at Mormons. And so uh, just avoid a lot of the stereotypes. And again, default to asking a question. If you don't understand, seek understanding before you really you know, go after something. Speaking of stereotypes, let's talk about polygamy. Okay? Uh, seriously, the jokes are offensive, right? Uh, polygamy was practiced in the, in the Latter-day Saint church for a while, but it hasn't been for over 100 years. And the modern... Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints excommunicates polygamists. Okay. Now again, as we saw, there are some fringe fundamentalist groups that do that, but sort of with, back to our discussion with Islam, you wouldn't want someone lumping you in with crazies that practice that do crazy stuff in the name of Christianity either. And so, unless unless you go over to your new Mormon friend's house and they have three wives over there and they all come out and introduce themselves as such, maybe like again, just try to avoid those things and understand that you're trying to proceed with respect. So. Okay, let's talk about, uh, this is a section we almost never get to, so we have uh, plenty of time left. Let's talk about how to be a perfect stranger. If you're going to go visit with a Mormon, you need to know worship is on Sundays, just like us. And actually, you're going to find that the service is very similar to what Protestant worship looks like. Okay, there's going to be singing, there's going to be some preaching, stuff like that. Uh, the Latter-day Saints practice an open table sacrament. It's bread and water, and you are well, open table means you are welcome to participate in that if you feel comfortable doing that. Again, you're going to be expecting some singing and preaching. And the, we already covered this, but the worship facility that you will be going to is not a temple. And that temple is a very different thing. So, we already covered don't, don't offer coffee and tea. So, All right. I, I was going to ask you any questions, but I'm just going to bring Mike up now because he will be far more able to answer your questions than I will. So would you all please welcome Mike Stevens up here. Thank you for having us here. Um, I met JR two days ago, and we sat down and talked a little bit. I can't believe he put this together. Um, this is, he did a very nice job. There's some few things here and there, um, and I won't go into those. that are not necessary at this time. But um, uh, just to tell you a little bit about myself, um, I uh, grew up in Beaver Creek here. Uh, I have uh, four children. And uh, I'm a physician at, working at a Kettering Hospital, so my service as a state president is, as I said, voluntary. Um, but um, I, I just wanted to, to let JR know that, uh, speaking from a physician's point of view, one of the most de desired of human needs is to be understood. And he is doing that. And he's helping people to feel understood. And so I appreciate that very much, JR, very much. Um, if I could just share just a few things and you can get some questions. 
There's a lot of uniqueness to the LDS faith, as, as you uh, saw up here. May I just share from our point of view that many of those things that seem unusual, we actually feel have reference in the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not like we take things from, from way out where, where it's not within that canon that people believe in. Um, if you look at the Book of Mormon, uh, if you were to read that, you would find it does no contradictions at all to the Old Testament and New Testament. People don't believe that. They say, well, you're teasing. Uh, you're just saying that, so I'll read it. No, there's no contradiction whatsoever in that book to the Old and New Testament. So uh, we feel that the, the, the reasons there's these unique and, and uh, different uh, practices, we feel we have grounds with certain passages in the scriptures. Uh, and then that we understand those differences and it takes a, a while to understand uh, how they came about and things of that nature. Um, the other thing, if I might ask that question that the lady uh, made about temples, temples and being secret, I don't know whether we would use that term. We like the term sacred. Um, a temple is, is our way of expressing uh, God's understanding of having a place set apart for sacred things. Uh, we know that Solomon's temple was set apart for sacred things. Uh, and it's, it's not so much secret uh, because people that go to the temple need to be prepared uh, for the importance of what they do there. And so it's just not open to the public. Uh, and, but we would not consider it uh, in that light, but a, very, a place that is very sacred. It, it, we, like we refer to it as a sacred place, a sacred space. Yes? Just uh, for your information, sometime in the next two or three years, they're building a temple over in Indianapolis. And we always have an open house where uh, anyone's welcome to go to that. They open it up for about oh, three or four weeks so people can actually go through and see uh, the facility. So that'll happen if anyone is interested in that. That opportunity will come up sometime yeah. in the next two or three years over in you bet, and it's certainly not secret because anything that goes on in there is on the internet, so nothing can be uh, <laughs> a secret anymore. So, uh, but to us, it represents a place where we prepare ourselves uh, and um, uh, try to be disciples of Christ to enter into sacred space, and that's what the temple uh, means to us. And I like how you brought to my attention that our whole feeling about our cosmology is that of an eternal uh, heavenly family, that we're all brothers and sisters. Uh, each deserving of respect and kindness. Uh, that's how we look at everyone on this earth because we do feel that we are literally sons and daughters of a Heavenly Father uh, and uh, we try to practice uh, John's admonition uh, that uh, if you love me, if you love the Savior and, and, and follow his way, you will keep my commandments. And this commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Uh, and that's how we, we try to look at our fellow brothers and sisters in communities such as this. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Do you guys have any questions? Yeah. Dr. Stevens, um, in the, after the book, when, when Jared put up, he had the, the, the Bible, uh, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, which was still open for Revelation. Yes. And then the Pearl of Great Price. Now those last two were written by Joseph Smith, is that correct? They were supposed to translate it exactly. by Joseph Smith? Well, not so much written. We feel that he was on the influence of Revelation. Okay. So he, right. he received Revelation and penned uh, that uh, information. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
Now, are those, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, does, did that establish the, the, uh, the authority and the church makeup by, that, that the LDS uses, or was, did that come over time? A very good question. The Doctrine and Covenants is kind of like our, oh, I don't know why to use that word, but it does establish the, our organization and, and many of the things that we do, uh, like the priesthood and different functions of the different priesthood offices. And so that is something that, that came over time as Joseph Smith received uh, further guidance on how to establish uh, uh, the religion of Christ, the Church of Christ, to bring it back uh, from, uh, to be restored. Uh, this was the, the method was through revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants. And then the Pearl of Great Price, it did, what does that establish? That establishes um, uh, further information about the ministry of Moses the prophet and also of the ministry of Abraham. Okay, and those were all uh, written and inspired by, an inspirational writing by Joseph Smith. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yes? Can you explain to me the symbol of the man blowing the horn and what he's standing on? Oh, that's a good question. That, that, what he's standing on is just kind of the uh, pedestal for which he's put on the spire, spiral, uh, spire, there we go. And uh, it's to represent one of the angels uh, in the book of Revelations that, uh, uh, well, help me with this, my, my fellow it's colleagues, that the, the a trumpet is sound, found, sound forth. It's uh, one of the um, angels sounding forth the trumpet uh, representative of, uh, uh, no, no, I am wrong there. I'm sorry, forgive me on that. I think it's something different. That is the angel Moroni. It is the angel Moroni who was the son. Uh, Moroni was a prophet who was the son that was a prophet here on the American continents. His father was Mormon, the one that took the abridgment. This abridgment of all the records were given to his son. He buried it uh, in, in the hill in New York and was the angel that came back to show Joseph Smith where he had deposited the plates. And um, that is the uh, Moroni. Uh, who was a prophet, but now we refer to him as the angel Moroni, because certainly he's deceased. And uh, we feel that he could represent one of the angels uh, in Revelations. That's where that came from. Oh. Very do good question. Do plates still exist? No, they do not exist. Uh, the angel took them back up. Uh, however, J.R. made a very interesting point is, and that is that there was an affidavit David signed by 11 other individuals who saw the plates and four of them actually held the plates and signed their name in an affidavit that they witnessed them. So we, that's kind of, kind of very interesting that, that people could sign an affidavit, just not Joseph Smith, that they existed. Quite interesting. Can I? Go ahead. Oh, yes. So by exist, you just mean that they're not here now? Oh, I mean, it's not that they didn't exist, or the, the idea is that Angel Rowan and I took them back to there we go, sorry. They're not figments of our imagination, but they were taken back in the custody of, of Angel Moroni. Meaning we believe they existed, yeah, and exist. J.R. used the words that, um, that there were a, a, a tribe of Israel in the, United, in, in the Americas, mm -hmm. okay? Now, does, does the LDS have a, a picture yet of, was that, uh, like, like where, like the tribes, you know, we think of the 12 tribes, or, you know, or at least, well, at least we're that. How, are, is that one of Abraham's tribes that got over here? 
uh, one of oh, Abraham. Oh, you know, exactly. Jacob's tribes? Well, it was, it was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the tribes um, uh, from uh, uh, Manassas. Uh, and okay. and uh, they uh, were fleeing from, from a lot of the, the uh, contention in Jerusalem at the time. There was a prophet by the name of Lehi who took his family uh, and they uh, crossed the ocean and came to the American continents, we believe. It was uh, right, right before the Babylonian exile, right? Yes, right, right before right. the Babylonian exile. Mm -hmm. right before At about 550 B.C. don't know the exact date Babylonian on that. Exile. So that was the second exile. Right. So it was um, after the first exile, before the second exile. That was, uh, that was before the first destruction of the temple, destruction of Solomon's temple. Mm -hmm. So what happened to them? What happened to these? Well, they... they the lost tribe that was in the North America. I mean, it don't, don't exist today, do they? No, no. What happened was you had the diaspora of all the children of Israel. They first broke up. There were 12 tribes, and then they, they broke up into the northern and southern kingdom. And then we know that the Assyrians took a lot of the 10 uh, northern tribes north, and uh, like I say, they scattered all the, uh, the children of Israel. Um, then the, most of the uh, uh, Judah went with uh, the Nebuchadnezzar captivity. And then this group, uh, being of Manasseh, they came over, small group, they came and established uh, small colonies. Uh, not sure of the exact location on the American continent. We feel that there is a limited uh, geography. It wasn't like they filled all of North and South America, um, but there were certainly other influences from other people, uh, from other lands coming into this continent and uh, associated with them uh, and not uh, in that regard. Is there a record of these people? Uh, uh, the Book of Mormon. Other than that? Uh, they're, they're finding, no, there's not really something where we see evidence that, um, that, that we, don't, we haven't found any documents that say, and we recorded something from the, from the Book of Mormon, or the Hand of Mormon, that we haven't found any evidence like that. It'd be nice, uh, but we feel that there's a lot of evidence uh, to support the nature. A lot of people didn't think that having gold plates ever could exist. And then in Mesopotamia and around the, the, the Jewish culture, they did find plates on copper and plates on gold. So there is uh, evidence that we feel that uh, support um, archaeologically the, the, the possibility of the existence of, of the Book of Mormon. So we feel that there's some, some, some evidence in that regard. Yes. Let's do one more in the water. Yes. Um, these, um, the temple garments, are they worn just in the temple? No, they're 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 worn all, all the time. All like the time. women, they're they're is there is there a bra involved? Is there? A, <laughs> uh, wow, that, that's a good question. Um, uh, what did we keep these garments close to our bodies, and and the bra would go on top. Like like is it a t-shirt? Like it would go over the t-shirt? Um, uh, I don't know how much. <laughs> it, it, it's it's a very good question. Okay. It, it's, yeah. it's just like a t-shirt, and, and then uh, the bra can go over the, okay. these uh, sacred garments. Right next to the skin. Yes, right next to the skin. Okay. Uh, I'm going to cut us off for the sake of time, but I'm sure that, that these three guys would love to hang out for a few minutes and, and chat with you afterwards. Uh, I, I just know some of you got kids to go pick up. I want to close this with a word of prayer. Uh, would you all thank Mike and his friends for coming and helping us out so much? Uh, I told him he's the, he's the first person that I've actually got who would uh, actually come and share with us, so I really appreciate it. So uh, let's close with the word of prayer, and then uh, we can get out of here again. Some of you can stick around and ask some more questions. God, we're grateful for this opportunity that we have together and to uh, consider 
what we believe and what uh, other people who, who live in our community believe. And we ask that uh, in, in everything that we've learned tonight, that it would spur us on to continue to build truth-seeking relationships, that we would truly become more aware of who you are and have a better sense of your truth. And so as, as we go from here, as we continue to read our scriptures and pray, we ask that you would continue to be near us and, and uh, reveal truth to us, that all of us, uh, both us Nazarenes and the Latter-day Saints, would have a clearer picture of who you are uh, and, and know your son Jesus better. We pray all of these things in his name.